Well, it is good to get to be here with you again today. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to continue today in our series, 12 Essential Conversations That Every Parent Should Have. Now, we only have two more weeks left in this series. But uh, our conversation today is likely one of the most needed and timely of our series, which is God's design for sex. Adrian Rogers, the famous preacher in Memphis, Tennessee, preached a message once entitled, God's Way to Have Safe Sex. After he introduced the title, you could hear a pin drop in the room. And then he laughed and said, now that I have your complete attention. Let's open the Bible in the, war, in the voice that only he could make. And the room just erupted in laughter. For about a second this morning, I considered walking up to the pulpit today with a little Marvin Gaye playing in the background, you know, kind of walking up. But I decided that that would be a little out of line. But church, we're probably going to laugh some today, and that's okay. People laughed because speaking about this topic is a little embarrassing, and rightfully so, because sex and sexuality is something that should be practiced in private. However, inside the church, we should never shy away from this topic because God has so much to say about it. God is the one who invented sex, and the Bible is his roadmap for how it is to be enjoyed. Sadly, though, the world is often the only people that are talking about it. And the church needs to be the people who will hold his truth and vocalize his truth. Church, as you know, the issue of God's design for sexuality is something that today is either being hidden by the faithless saints because they're afraid to boldly stand on the truth of God's word that it may offend someone. It's either being hijacked by false saints who are denying scripture and making excuses for things that the Bible does not excuse or It is being hated by the faithful saints who are courageously standing on God's truth. The sexual revolution that we're living in today has thrust this issue to the forefront of life in America where there is virtually no middle ground. And that's not all a bad thing because inside of God's design, there is no middle ground. There is no gray area in sexuality. God has his design. This morning, we're going to look back at Genesis 2 and see God's design for sexuality in the beginning with Adam and Eve and use that as a launching pad to look throughout the Bible on this topic. But before we do that, let me say a few things. First, as we look at God's design for sexuality, His Word will shine a light into our lives and we will often see our own faults and failures. This is not bad today, church. For those of us today who are actively engaging in sexual sin, when God's Word stings, that's a good thing. Because it is evidence that He is at work in our lives and He is trying to lead us out of that which is not His design into what is His design where we will ultimately flourish the best. So don't shy away from the stings of God's Word today. God's way is always best. Secondly, as we talk about these issues, for basically all adults in this room today, it will likely remind us of places and moments in our lives where we have fallen outside of God's design sexually in some way at some time. If you're a Christian, God does not want you to walk in condemnation over past sin that has been repented of and that is under the blood of Jesus. As Christians, we do not have to bear the shame of our past But as a church, we must still address sin. So today or any time God's word is being proclaimed and you're reminded of a moment of sin in your past, you shouldn't try to diminish that sin, 
But you should just recognize that a loving Savior has washed it away. In the same way in John chapter 8 where Jesus dealt with the woman who was caught in adultery, the Bible says, where are those who condemn you? Jesus said, and she says, none. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The grace of mercy of Jesus can bring us out of condemnation but can still hold us to truth. Finally, parents, I want you to know today that as I speak to you as your pastor, I'm also speaking to you as one who is facing the reality of this head on. I have a preteen daughter in my home with two young little boys just right on her heels. And so my prayer, as I look at God's design for sexuality today, is that it would steal my spine and strengthen my resolve to hold God's Word as the standard in my home. And my prayer is, as it does for you, the same thing I'm praying that it does for me. So today, let's look at God's Word. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said... It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not a shame. Let's give the Lord a big hand for his word here today. The essential conversation that we're going to cover today that is vastly needed for a biblical worldview concerning sexuality in the next generation is this. God's design for sexual intimacy is to be expressed exclusively inside the bounds of heterosexual monogamous marriage. Now here in this passage, we see the very first marriage. Now, only in recent years would marriage need to be defined as heterosexual marriage. But in the world in which we live today, we need to say that according to Scripture, heterosexual marriage is the only marriage that is affirmed by God. But in any case, here in this passage, we see the first marriage, which in turn led to the first sexual encounter. We see this in the statement, the two shall become one flesh, and the idea that they were both naked And they were not ashamed. Now this is the basis for our truth today. That God created intimacy to be expressed exclusively inside the bounds of heterosexual monogamous marriage. And the rest of the scriptures affirm this. Now as we've done in recent weeks to be able to properly examine these conversations. And have these conversations with our kids. We have to answer three questions. And so let me attempt to do that. Today, First, question number one, where do we see God's design for sexual intimacy in the Scriptures? Now, this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. As we've said, the Bible has a lot to say about sex. Here in Genesis 2, we see God's design for sex. But once sin entered the world and sexual expression began to be distorted, we see God saying even more about sex and sexuality through the Scriptures. But essentially, the Bible's lessons on sex and sexuality break down into three categories, which are what is good sex, what is bad sex, and how to honor God in 
sex. So let's look at those for just a few moments here. <clears throat> the first, first lesson the Bible gives us about God's design for sexual intimacy is this. The Bible shows us what good sex is. According to Scripture, the Bible gives us several reasons by which we can know the, that sexual expression is a good thing. Let me give you five of them here today. First, we know that sex is good because God designed sex. The Bible makes it very clear that sex is inside of God's design for humanity. In Genesis 1, on the sixth day of creation, we see clearly that God gave man the command and the ability to be fruitful and multiply, which obviously speaks to sexual intimacy. And at the end of the day, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God looked at all he had created, and, and, and including the act, activity of sexual intimacy inside of marriage, and this is what he says, it is very good. Sex in our sinful, broken world has become ugly and perverse. It's, it's become something like the condemned house in the neighborhood that you're afraid of letting your, chid, your, your children play next to for fear that they may go inside and be injured or broken. But it was never intended to be that way. Sex was rather intended to be the beautiful mansion in the neighborhood that we walk our children by. Yes, it has gates and it is entered into only into God's design, but it's not intended to be something that we're afraid of because it was always intended to be something that was good because God designed sex. Secondly, we need to know that sex is good because God demanded sex as part of marriage. Now, when I use the word demanded, I mean that the Scriptures points us to the fact that sexual intimacy inside the bounds of marriage is expected by God to be part of marriage. Now, there are times and medical situations and things may hinder this, yes. However, inside of God's design, if you are married and can have sex, you should be having sex because it pleases God. Again, we see here in Genesis chapter 2, the very first action after the very first marriage was that they had sex. And this is, Scripture says in Genesis 2, 24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul actually encouraged married couples to be afraid, to be wary, to be guarded against taking seasons off from sexual intimacy. He makes this statement, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again. He's talking about then come together intimacy again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now parents, you may be thinking, this is an important conversation to have with your kids. Is this an important conversation to have with your kids that God demands sex inside of marriage? It may not be for you right now, but it will be at some point. Especially if you have older children or married children. In fact, grandparents, one of the best things that you can do for your children and grandchildren is to take the kids for a weekend occasionally to give your adult children time to rest, to reconnect, and let's be honest, enjoy an empty house. If you could be helping them honor the Lord. And can I say something today? If you've got young kids in this room today, can I get an amen? Sometimes it's good to bless your children with this time. <clears throat> Thirdly, we know that sex is good because God gave us sexual desires. In the same way that we understand that God designed sexual intimacy, He also designed how our bodies desire it. 
In fact, Paul mentioned that our sexual desires very likely can be a determining factor in discerning if God is calling us to singleness. Not an exclusive desire, not an exclusive indicator, but it can be part of that. It says in, verse, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9, Now to the unmarried and to the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, speaking of their sexual desires, they should marry. For it is better for them to marry than to burn with passion. Now let's be honest, we all understand what it means for us to burn with sexual desires. It is inside of God's design. Many people think that having sexual desires is a sinful thing, but this is untrue. In the Bible, it is clear that our sexual desires are a gift from God. They're not wrong, but only if they are misused outside of God's design. In Song of Solomon, which is a celebration of romantic love inside of marriage, we see in chapter 7, Solomon talking about his desire for his wife sexually. Beginning in verse 1, this is what he says. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of your hands, an artist. Your navel is a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like twin fawns, twins of a gazelle. Now, he, he continues going this way all the way up to verse 10 where she says, his wife says to him, I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. We see them desiring each other in this way. Now, folks, let's be honest. You can feel the heat off this passage here, okay? Solomon and his wife here, they either need a cold shower or a private room. And that's okay. Because inside of God's design, sexual desire is a good thing. Fourthly, we need to know that sex is good because God delights in the consequences of sex inside of marriage. God's design in sexuality is not just for the sexual desires alone to be fulfilled, but there are other results that come from sexual intimacy inside of marriage that God delights in. Let me give you four C's that come from God-ordained sexual intimacy. Number one, God delights in the children that come from sexual intimacy. We talked about earlier in this series, God loves kids and kids come from sex. And so God loves the outgrowth of sexual intimacy inside of marriage. Number two, God delights in the connection with your spouse that comes from sexual intimacy. Sex was never meant to be physical only. In fact, it's one of the greatest harms of sexual intimacy that we see in our world when sex becomes physical only. God always intended it to be physical and emotional. And I would say to you here today, couples, this is an act, you in moments of intimacy, married couples, is that it's a good thing to connect you not just physically but emotionally. I'll say this, if you ever find yourself just kind of bickering and fighting with each other and kind of at each other's throat, sometimes you need to stop for a moment and say, when was the last time we were intimate? Because maybe you need to reconnect in that way. Number three, God delights in the celebration of God's design that comes from sexual intimacy. In a world that continues to champion all sorts of sexual perversion outside of God's design, when married couples practice godly sex, it honors God. And then fourthly, God delights in how sexual intimacy combats the works of the devil. 
Now, there are many ways that the devil attacks marriages, but sexual intimacy has always been a major one. If a couple is connected regularly with their spouse, it often helps keep the enemy enemy at bay. Regular sexual intimacy not only connects you emotionally, but it also guards against the enemy's attempts to draw you into situations of infidelity in the body and in the mind. I remember Andy Heiss was my youth minister in high school when I was about 16 years old. He got a bunch of guys together and he was having the sex talk with us. And I remember him making this statement. He said, guys, before you get married, all the devil wants to do is try to get you to have sex. And then after you get married, all he ever wants to do is try to keep you from having sex. And, and I remember, honestly, being a 16-year-old kid at that point, saying, you know, thinking to myself, hey, Andy, you know, I may struggle with something someday. That probably ain't going to be one of them, you know. Uh, but he's a thousand percent right because the enemy hates when a couple is together in sexual intimacy because it honors God and connects them in a great God-honoring way. I remember my brother preaching a message about this one time and he made this statement, making love in marriage is often making war. You are fighting the devil. And then fifthly, we know that sex is good in the way that God designated sex. One of the easiest ways to know that God celebrates sexual intimacy is to see that he gave clear examples of what is right and what is wrong when it comes to sexual intimacy. The fact that God painted the boundary lines of sexual intimacy doesn't just mean that he's showing us what's out of bounds. He's also showing us what's in bounds. He's showing us how to play the game because he desires us in marriage and in intimacy to walk in that. And the Bible makes it very clear, again, what is his design for sexual intimacy. Let me say it again. God created sexual intimacy to be expressed exclusively inside the bounds of heterosexual monogamous marriage. This is what we see in Genesis 2, but this is also what we see Jesus affirmed. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, we see Jesus affirming God's design in sexual intimacy all the way back to Genesis. This is what he said. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? <clears throat> and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God joined together, let no man separate. Now, while the scriptures clearly address all sorts of sexual expressions that are outside of God's design, and we're going to get to that in a moment, some liberal theologians have attempted to claim that since Jesus never addressed certain specific sexual sins, that he must personally approve them. Since Jesus never talked about homosexuality, since Jesus never talked about the transgender lifestyle, he must approve them. Well, first off, you need to know that's a terrible way to interpret Scripture. Because the words of Jesus are no more or no less inspired by God than the rest of Scripture. This is important to know. The words in red do not hold more weight than the rest of the Word. And secondly, what you need to know here is that Jesus absolutely condemned all these other sexual practices, but He did it by clearly affirming Genesis 2 right here in Matthew 19. Let me give you an example of that. See, today there are many women in this room. The only one of them is my wife. Now, I could bring every woman up here on this stage, and I could go to every woman and go one by one and say, this is not my wife, 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 till eventually I came to, this is my wife. Or, and a lot simpler and a lot more clear cut, I could just bring my wife up on the stage and say, this is my wife. 
And by saying, this is my wife, I am also saying, everybody, every other woman in this room is not my wife. That's what Jesus did here. He didn't go through every sexual sin that could be possible. In fact, he just went to the one that was right. And if he went to the one that was right and he affirmed the Genesis 2 account, then everything outside of that is wrong. Do we understand that today? That is very clearly important. So clearly today, we can see that inside the Scriptures that God has a lot to say about what he designed as far as sex and what is good. The second lesson the Bible gives us about God's design for sexual intimacy is the Bible shows us what bad sex is. Now, as we said before, the easiest way to know what is right is to go straight to what is right and everything else is wrong. But God also knows that we are often deceived by the enemy. And so all throughout Scripture, God very clearly speaks to other forms of sexual intimacy, and he he mentions them as sin that are outside of the design of God. So today, I want to very quickly give you 10 different expressions of sexuality that are expressly condemned by God in the Scriptures. Now, this is not a full list as far as what Scripture is concerned. If we did that, we'd be here all day. There are certain things that our society today still affirms as wrong such as bestiality, such as pedophilia. Nobody, for for the most part, is arguing that these things are right. Not that they're not sin, but today I just want to give you ten things that in our realm today that are commonly being participated in that God clearly condemns. So let me give you those. First, we see that adultery is condemned by God in the Scriptures. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 14, we see the seventh of the Ten Commandments that says, you shall not commit adultery. In the Old Testament days, adultery was considered by the Jews the great sin. Now, obviously, adultery means today essentially the same thing it did in the biblical world, which is to have sexual relations of any kind with a married person or with someone who is outside of your marriage. However, since marriage was clearly part of God's design for his people in biblical days, some scholars have suggested that all sexual sin finds its home in the Ten Commandments in this command to do not commit adultery. And I believe that they are right. Parents, we need to train our children that fidelity in marriage is God's command. And in a world that continues to celebrate and tempt people towards blatant sin, we need to hold this high. And we have seen this in our day. How many of us remember just a few years ago when the data leak of the Ashley Madison Corporation uh, came out? And the Ashley Madison Corporation was simply a website where you could anonymously go and set up hookups, for instance, and casual sex encounters with other people. And it was specifically catered to married people. Their tagline was, life is short, have an affair. How many people also remember that when that data leak came out and these people who were supposedly anonymous, their names went out publicly? How many families were ruined? How many lives were ruined? I know of one man who was a Christian man who had fallen in that area that committed suicide after that fact. We see over and over in Scripture, when we do things that are outside of God's design, is it leads to brokenness. And adultery is one of them. Secondly, promise you, let me say this by the way, there is no sin, there is no level of brokenness that is worth you taking your life over. Is that God loves you and there's grace for that. Secondly, promiscuity is condemned by God in the scriptures. In Romans 13, 13, Paul specifically mentions promiscuity as a deed of darkness. Now, promiscuity, according to scripture, usually refers to sexual interactions with many people. It is basically sleeping around or casual sex. 
Church family, we need to let the next generation know that God's word shows us that when we have sexual encounters with people, that we become one flesh with them. That's not just physically, but that's emotionally. And the more repetitive we do this, the more of ourselves we give to people. And this ultimately leads to people who've had multiple sexual partners over their lifetime, is that you talk to them and they usually have very little sense of self-worth. I've counseled people in every type of sexual sin you can imagine over two decades of ministry. Let me say this to you this morning. I have never met a person who had many sexual partners who didn't regret it later in life. Number three, fornication is condemned by God in the Scriptures. In Acts chapter 15, verse 29, we see that fornication was one of the things that early church leaders demanded that new Gentile Christians stay away from. In Acts 15, 29, he tells them to abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled, and listen, and fornication. The early church was saying this does not belong among God's people. Now, the Greek word for fornication, listen to this, is pornea. It's the same word that we use to get pornography. In the ancient world, it was used as sort of a catch-all word to describe all sorts of sexual sin. For our understanding today, it would include intercourse as well as other forms of sexual interaction. Now, church family, without going into great details to explain this, just let me use this illustration. Most of you will understand what fornication could look like. It is in the fact that fornication would include sex, but it would also include that which President Bill Clinton defined as not having sex during his tenure. Fornication may not be intercourse, but it is still sex in the eyes of God. Homosexuality, number four, is condemned by God in the Scriptures. Regardless of what is being celebrated in our world today, homosexual behavior is not right and good in the eyes of God, but is considered an abomination against God's design. We as Christians can and should absolutely love homosexual people, while at the same time affirm that it is not right and it is not normal. Even though a small number of academically dishonest people may try to convince the world that the Scriptures do not condemn monogamous committed homosexuality, the truth is that honest scholarship sees right through this. The Scriptures in both the Old Testament and the New Testament have gone virtually unquestioned in its clear condemnation of homosexuality for thousands of years. I could give several verses this morning. But probably one of the clearest is in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where the Apostle Paul is communicating what is the evidences of people who are outside of God's design, who have been given over to depravity, is what Scripture says. It says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. You hear that degrading? It's, it's the negative passions. Further, women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Church family, the reason why we have to address this is because the Bible clearly condemns homosexuality. But it, today, it is often not being condemned but celebrated. Can homosexual people emotionally love each other? I believe that they can can they be nice people? I know several people who are. Should we run from them like lepers in the streets? Absolutely not. 
But is their lifestyle an offense to God that will one day endure His judgment if not repented of? Yes. You may say, Pastor Zach, that's not my God. He wouldn't do that. Let me say to you today that we must meet God on His terms and not ours. And the God of the Bible is absolutely a loving and merciful God, but He is also just and He is the standard of what is just. And we don't get the privilege of telling Him what is right and wrong. God is God and we are not. Let me say one more thing about homosexuality. Some people try to justify homosexuality as well as other sins as something that must be okay because they desire it, or they, they may argue that they're genetically predispositioned to it. Hear this this morning. Just because someone is same-sex attracted does not give them permission to sin. There are many desires that we have in the flesh that God hates. Also, just because you deal with same-sex attraction doesn't mean that you're a homosexual. Someone being homosexual is defined by what they do repeatedly and what they affirm. I know today Christian people who struggle with same-sex attraction, but they are honoring God by not giving in to those desires in the same way that Christians should discipline their flesh in other areas. The lie of our present culture is that if you desire it, then your deeds are justified. This is a lie, and it breaks down at some point. At some point, what you desire has to be considered right and wrong, and we must use the standard of God's Word to justify that. I love the example that Rick Warren gave several years ago around the time that gay marriage was being uh, argued for. And he was doing an interview with a rather large media outlet, and they asked the question. They said, Pastor Warren, if, if they found out tomorrow that definitively that homosexuality is a genetic predisposition, would you still condemn it? And he said, yes, I would. And the news anchor, you could tell she was kind of rattled, like, how could you say that? And this is where he gave a good logical response to that. He said, nowhere else in our world, because we desire something, is it considered justified. He made the statement, he said, I am a heterosexual man, and I am attracted to beautiful women. But does that mean that I can morally make an argument that I can have sex with every beautiful woman that I see? No, absolutely. You may be genetically inclined to really love ice cream, but no doctor would tell you that that is, means that your desire is good for you. We are more than our desire. Self-control has a place in every right and just society. Number five, polygamy meaning several spouses at the same time, is condemned by God in the Scriptures. God's standard for marriage and sexuality clearly calls for monogamy, meaning one spouse at a time in marriage. Now, polygamy was a common practice in the ancient Near East. And several of the patriarchs of some of God's people that they wrongly followed in that pattern and took many wives. Now, you may say, well, why did God use them? Because God was working through them in spite of their sinfulness, not because of their sinfulness. He was not approving their sinfulness. In fact, one of the greatest polygamists and the most abundant polygamists we know in Scripture was Solomon. And Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 13, we see that the Scriptures showed that his many wives ultimately was that which led his heart away from God, as all sin does. It said that he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Number six, polyamory meaning several people in sexual relationships at the same time uh, is condemned by God in Scripture. Now, this is the idea of a household of people who all live in an open conglomerate of marriage and sexuality in some way that they've all committed to that. 
And the reality is is that polyamory is just a fancy word in our day for a long-term committed orgy. It has a guise of commitment, but it is still wicked in the eyes of God. Number seven, serial monogamy, meaning several spouses at different times, is condemned by God in Scriptures. The idea of serial monogamy in our day are situations where you see divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, often in unbiblical divorces. We see Jesus address this in Matthew chapter 19 as he addressed this issue among the Jews because the Jews were doing that, is that they were divorcing their wives for any reason and just taking another wife. And this is what he said. They asked him the question, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Inside of God's design, adultery and immorality is the only grounds for a biblical divorce. Now let me say this. Does God hate divorce? Absolutely. According to Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, Scripture says, I hate divorce, says the Lord. Do people get divorced and remarried in situations where Scripture would say it was unbiblical and they should have remained single? Yes, absolutely. However, if you are married today and you're in one of these situations, I want you to know that your marriage is still a marriage in the eyes of God. God does not want you to divorce just to get out of that sin or to to, uh, walk in perpetual shame. God can give you grace and mercy where you are, and He can even redeem your present situation. It may not have started off right, but you can bring it into submission under God, and God can redeem it. God can bring beauty from the ashes. But that being the case, we should still know that just because God's grace can cover something shouldn't mean that we flippantly walk into it. Marriage is intended to be a forever commitment, not flippant and casual. Number eight. Pornography is condemned by God in the Scriptures. Jesus mentioned how what we view with our eyes in a sexual way is just as much of a sexual sin in the eyes of God as any other sin. In Matthew chapter 5, verses verses 27 and 28, He said, You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Church family, this is a vast problem in our day today. One study shows that 50% of Christian men view pornography regularly. And 20% of Christian women view pornography regularly. There's a stigma in the past that says that it's just men. The truth is the largest number of people getting into pornography is women right now. And then one terribly gross statistic was that 50% of pastors view pornography regularly. No wonder We don't see revival and God working in the lives of the church today. Church, God hates pornography. And parents, we cannot be casual about it with our kids, but we absolutely also must kill it in ourselves. Let me also give a warning to married couples today. There is no place for pornography in your marriage. If you bring pornography into your bedroom, even if you both consent to it, you are inviting the devil into your sex life. And the devil doesn't come to spice it up, he comes to split it up. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 that the marriage bed should be undefiled. Let me say one more thought here. Sexually sexually explicit books 
are just as much pornography as visual material. Fifty Shades of Grey is just as much pornography as Playboy or Hustler or any of these other vendors. And they all have consequences. And again, as we talk about this among teenagers, we've got to address it among parents. I had a friend of mine in Arkansas who was a godly man, and God, he had a great marriage, but he had a very broken life in his early teenage years and up to his 20s in college sexually. He had a lot of brokenness in his life sexually. He grew up in a minister's home. And he's made the statement. He said that his sexual perversion and his sexual mistakes began when he found his father's pornography stash. And when he realized that it was good for his father, then certainly it should be good for him. And know this today, that while God has redeemed this man, that his father bears responsibility for that. So church family, you cannot push people. You cannot expect to see victory among your children if you don't have victory among it yourself. Number nine, prostitution is condemned by God in the Scriptures. Church family, the Bible clearly speaks how prostitution is outside of God's design. In 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 24, we see prostitution is the fruit of a nation that has abandoned God, according to Scripture. Now, normally, this wouldn't be something that we would say is a regular problem in our nation today, but as far as addressing among common people. But the truth is, is it's important today because prominent political leaders, including the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, has regularly called for the legalization of people that she calls as sex workers to be legalized and ultimately to be able to be taxed. Let me say something to you today, church. Prostitution is a depraved in the eyes of God. It is brokenness to those who do it. And any nation that attempts to legalize it will suffer the depravity of that in their culture. And finally, number 10, marital withholding of sex is condemned by God in the Scriptures. Now, this may seem mild compared to some of the other issues we've covered, but it is still sin in the eyes of God. For a wife or husband to withhold sex from their spouse as a form of bargaining chip or just as laziness, it is sin in the eyes of God. Again, obviously, there are situations where physically sex is not possible. But as we said before, in marriage, if you can have sex, you should be having sex. It is part of the covenant of marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, the Scripture says, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Let me say one more thing here. Just because your partner is commanded to fulfill your sexual needs doesn't mean that you shouldn't serve them. In the same way that one person in a marriage shouldn't withhold sex until they get what they want, the other person in a marriage shouldn't only serve their spouse when they're trying to get sex. So again, there are few areas here of sexual expression that we see clearly that are outside of God's design, and we must courageously point the next generation to them. And then thirdly, the lesson the Bible, we, finally we see the third lesson that the Bible gives about God's design for sexual intimacy. The Bible shows us how to honor God in sex. You know, the Bible makes it clear that we should be a people who fight for holiness. And this is a hard battle at times, but it is a battle that we should wage. For the sake of time, I'm going to give you these very quickly. First, to honor God in your sexuality, you need to first affirm God's truth. Do not justify your sin. 
to ultimately walk in the freedom that God designs, you cannot justify or ignore failure. The Bible says in Psalms 119 verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. So you've got to affirm God's truth. Secondly, you've got to flee from temptation. The Bible says that you have to run from sexual sin. You can't play around with it. You can't flirt around with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee immorality and every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. What does this mean? It means that if you struggle with pornography, get rid of the internet off your phone and off your computer at home. Don't work in the office with a person that you're attracted to. Don't go to their office. Send an email. If you're at the gym, it means you may have to change gyms if you're attracted to somebody. But the idea is you do whatever it takes to get away. And then thirdly, confess your sin. If you're married, you should confess your sin and your struggles to your spouse and a Christian friend. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. If you struggle with sexual sin, even if you begin to sense the temptation, you need to tell that to your spouse. Over the years of ministry and interacting with people, I do the above and beyond as far as guarding myself in that. But if I even ever remotely get a hint that somebody else is flirting with me, the first person I go to is that person right there on the front row. The reality is, is that you cannot even begin to play with this. You have to run with it. And I would say another person you need to confess it to is a Christian brother, sister in Christ of the same gender. Somebody who will hold you accountable to bring that sin or even that temptation into the light. So this is the first question we need to discuss today. Question number two. In what ways do we see God's design for sexuality expressed in the world today, where do we see God, God's working in the world? Again, this is where do we see if it's in God's design, where does it work out as a positive thing in the world? There's so much that I could give you here today, but I just want to give you two for the sake of time. First, the world affirms God's design for sexuality in that we see that those who follow God's design to wait until marriage for sex have a greater ability to have stability in their marriage. Now, this works statistically for both men and women. But let me give you some stats here today for women. The Institute for Family Studies showed that over four decades that women who were virgins at the time of their marriage or only had one sexual partner were likely to experience divorce, more likely to experience or less likely to experience divorce than women who had other sexual partners by significant percentages. In 2010, the chance of divorce for a woman who was a virgin at the time of her marriage had only a 5% chance of divorce. Essentially, we see here that God's design for sexuality shows up in the success of marriages. If we save sex for marriage, then marriage usually thrives. Now again, let me address this. If you're a Christian here today and you've had past sexual failures, know this, that just because your failures may mean statistically that you're more bound for something, God's grace is bigger than statistics, okay? You need to hear that today. But we also need to recognize that still, God's design for sexuality shows and proves to be true statistically. Secondly, the world affirms God's design for sexuality, and that we see that those who follow God's design for heterosexual marriage and sexuality have a greater chance of safety in the body and in the mind. 
When I speak about safety in the body and the mind, I'm primarily referring to the higher rates of STDs and the onset of mental health problems among people who step outside of God's design. The CDC, CDC shows that among homosexual men, that there is pre- preferably right now, or, or, or right now, recently, there is a rise among sexual transmitted disease at 83% of primary and secondary cases of syphilis in the United States happen among gay and bisexual men. There are also, gay and bisexual men are 17 times more likely to get certain forms of cancer. When it comes to mental health stat, one study showed that people in the LGBTQ community are twice as likely as heterosexuals to have mental illness. Lesbian and bisexual women are twice as likely to struggle with alcohol And the rate of suicide for LGBTQ youths is four times higher than other heterosexual youth. The world shows us over and over and over again that when we step outside of God's design for sexuality, it injures us. Now again, there are dozens of stats that affirm God's design for sexuality. From how people who don't look at pornography are more fulfilled in their marriage and their sex lives than those who do to how children who grow up in a home with a committed mother and father seem to thrive, to how teenagers who avoid early sexual experiences seem to avoid mental health risks later in life. But essentially, they all say the same thing over and over and over again. When we do sex God's way, it works out better. And our final question this morning, why do we need to teach our children about God's design for sexual expression? Parents, this cannot be overstated. But let me give you a few reasons that we must have these conversations with our children. First, we must teach our children about God's design for sexual expression because sexuality is being pushed so early. Sadly today, our world is attempting to sexualize our children at an alarming rate. An article in Parenting Science referred to this push and gave some examples of clothing designers who are attempting to market. And again, I apologize for the terminology here, but we just need to know this. Clothing designers who are marketing phone panties to preschoolers and elementary school girls. We all saw this among the Netflix documentary the, that called Cuties that was showing the dance team performances of those young girls, young preteen girls, who their dances and their movements belonged more in a strip club than they did on a youth dance studio. For Christians, though, all over we see all over culture, we see society speeding up, ramping up sexuality among our children. For Christians, we're called not to speed it up, but to slow it down. In Song of Solomon, chapter eight, verse four. It says this, I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. One translation says, awaken my love until it's time. There's a time for sexuality, and we need to, parents, guard that time, but we need to slow it down. Church, while the world must be, while the world is pressing the accelerator on the sexuality of our kids, we need to be there to pull the emergency brake. Now, parents, let me say one more thing to you. If you're willing, and allowing your children to dress sensually, to view and watch and listen to things that are sexual in nature, or even promote romantic relationships way too early in the lives of your children, then you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Parents, we may not can save our kids from everything that's out there in the world, but it is our responsibility to do all we can. 
I remember hearing a pastor tell the story one time. He was pastoring in the Merritt Island, Florida area where they were uh, doing the, uh, the, the NASA launches in the early 60s and 70s. And he told the story about a, uh, a day an astronaut came through the, the, where they were holding these giant Saturn V rockets. And as he was walking through, there was a man in that giant engine working on it. And because it was such a tedious task, he had hairnets on, he had, he had clothing on, he had, he, had, he had booties over his shoes and gloves, and all of his tools were laid out in a cloth holder so that he could label every tool so nothing would be left behind. He was meticulous as though a surgeon would be working on this giant engine engine. And the astronaut walked by this cocky young man and kind of yelled over there to him and said, hey buddy, you do a good job with that because I'm going to take it to the moon. And he said the guy in the engine, the, the engineer in the engine did not laugh. He softly and quietly set his tool down. He turned around and pointed his finger to that astronaut and made this statement, young man, if it fails, it won't be because of me. Church family, when it comes to our shepherding our children, us guarding our children, again, you can't keep them from everything, but you've got to let your statement be today before God one day that if they fail, it won't be because of me. Secondly, we must teach our children about God's design for sexual expression because they are perceiving it. Parents, as we talked about earlier, God gave us sexual desires that we can begin to deal with pretty early on. And if we're honest, for most of us in our teens, we remember these confusing times. Parents, our kids need us to be there to talk with them during this time. We must show them the beauty of God's sex. We must show them the boundaries in sex. And we must be willing to strengthen and support them in the waiting. You have to have open conversations about this with your children. They need to be able to come to you and let you know when they are struggling. Because here's the deal. If we are not available to them in these conversations, then we leave them in the dark to wander and try to figure it out on their own, and that can be a very confusing and dangerous place. Parents, if we don't give our children an answer for sexuality, the devil will. Thirdly, we must teach our children about God's design for sexual expression because it can cause so much pain. Parents, this enemy tempts our children to have sexual encounters. The flip side of this temptation is for them to feel the shame and consequences of those decisions. And in a digital age where sexting and cyberbullying is, is real, the greatest way to avoid the pain of, of, of these situations is to follow God's design for sexuality. Parents, we need to remember that even our sexual mistakes that we make as teenagers and young adults, that they can't affect us later in life. We need to be sober about that. I remember just a few years ago, I was counseling a young marriage. I did their wedding. It was a beautiful wedding. All was well. They'd been married for a couple of months. And then I got a phone call out of nowhere one day from this wife who was a young wife who was just burdened that they needed to get together. They were struggling. afraid their marriage was going to be over. So I gathered this young couple in our office, and they began to, to talk. The young girl began to talk as the young man began to sit in shame. And basically what had happened was they'd been married a few months and had yet to have sex. They had tried multiple times over on their honeymoon. They had tried many times throughout that, and, and nothing was taking place. And as I began to talk to this young man, I found out that from a young teenager, he began to be exposed to pornography. And one level of pornography advanced to another level of pornography, and another level of pornography advanced to another level of pornography, to the point to where his pornography that he was watching was so violent, so unnatural, but he had become so desensitized by it that the shape and form of his new young bride did not arouse him anymore. And the truth is, is that the devil 
ultimately and always pays with counterfeit money. And we see that to be true. Parents, we have to know that when we take sex out of God's plan, it just hurts us and those around us. Fourth, we must teach our children about God's design for sexual expression because it is being wrongly prioritized. Parents, we must teach our children how God's design for sexuality is part of God's plan, but also how it's not everything in life. In our world today, your sexuality and your sexual orientation is seemingly being proclaimed that it is the most important thing about you, and that is just not true. Parents, we need to let our children know that according to the Bible, they are so much more than their sexuality. We are created in God's image with a plan and a purpose in our life to glorify Him and the ability to find total satisfaction in Him, even if we never experience sex. Also, according to God, you are more than your sexual mistakes. Let me say one more thing to you here this morning. This is important. As the world continues to celebrate homosexuality, The likelihood of our children experimenting with it is very high. One study has shown that among adolescents today, that one in five will end their season of adolescence having dealt with at least one moment of struggle with their sexual orientation. This means that preteens and teens are more likely to be tempted to have same-sex encounters than ever before. And we're already seeing this temptation We see it in the media. We see it in music with people like Katy Perry and her song that said, I kissed a girl and I liked it. Temptation is constantly facing our children today. But let me say this to everyone this morning, those who are watching online, to young people and to adults in this room for that matter. If you are here today and you have had a same-sex experience or encounter, that does not define you. In Jesus, you can repent of that and you can begin to honor God and His blood can wash that away and you can fully follow His design. What the enemy would love to do is tempt you to a moment of failure and then once you fail, then begin to breathe into the lie of your mind the rest of your life that you are this. And the truth is is that that is not true inside of God's design. Fifthly and finally, we must teach our children about God's design for sexual expression because God has a plan for our sexuality. God has a plan in how we can honor Him in our sexuality. God's design for sexual intimacy is for it to be enjoyed inside the bounds of monogamous heterosexual marriage. And He promised that if we do it His way, it will lead to greater blessings. In the church, we also need to be sober about the fact that the Bible also says that God has a plan to one day judge those who perpetually dishonor Him in their sexuality. As we approach the idea of sexuality, if you've heard anything here today, know this, that God cares. And the Bible says He cares enough to judge it. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about people who have fallen once. He's talking about people who are perpetually living in that lifestyle. Adrian Rogers spoke about the reality of God's coming judgment and how it should bring us to a place of great repentance. And this is what he said. If you are living in sexual promiscuity without the rod of God's discipline, I wouldn't give one half hallelujah for your hope of heaven. You're going to hell, and I'm saying this to you as a friend because God's word is truth. You know what? He's true. If we can live consistently outside of God's design, then we should fear for our soul. Children, we've, our, our parents, we have to teach our children God's design because their soul is at stake. 
I know we're a few minutes over here today, but the truth is, how often are we going to address an issue like this this morning? I want to tell you one more thing. I'm going to ask the instrumentalist to begin to come. This last week, on Mondays, I, I kind of start laying out my message and studying and preparing for it. And I kind of had a little bit, had an idea of where we were going to head. And Monday evening, I come home. Kimberly had the boys, and so I just had Ella at home, my, my beautiful 11-year-old girl, preteen little girl. And she was helping me in the garden. She got to run the tiller for the first time this last week, so she's pretty fired up about that. She asked me, she said, if I run the tiller, Daddy, can I run the push mower? And I was like, oh, hey, sure, absolutely. She said, hey, can, can you pay me for it? I was like, no. Anybody? Um, but as she's running the tiller, and I keep looking over at this beautiful young little girl, knowing where what's going on in our culture today, knowing about what she may face. Listen, we all have moments where we face the perversion of sexuality in our day, but the truth is we've never seen it like we see today. And so as any parent, I started to get fearful. And I'll be honest with you, I couldn't shake it that night. I went to bed. I got up that morning, 5.30 that morning, I got in my one-year Bible, God's Word. Hope you're doing that. And as I'm reading, telling the story in Judges chapter 6 of Gideon. And oh, God bless my soul. And the season in the lives of the children of Israel is that they were consistently being attacked and they could do nothing about it. They were being defeated by outward nations who would come in and destroy and rob them and then take everything and retreat. And so they were consistently in this situation. The Bible says that Gideon, he's in the wine press. The wine press had walls so he could hide and he's threshing out the wheat. So you don't thresh out wheat in the wine press. He's in the wine press because he's afraid. He's just trying to keep what is his. But suddenly, God showed up to this fearful, cowardice man, and he called him by name, something that he never saw. He said to Gideon, Oh, Gideon, oh, valiant warrior. And then he ultimately, he ended up talking about how he would strengthen him. He would take Gideon out of the wine press and would ultimately send him out to lead the nation of Israel in great victory. But it started with this man who was cowardice and afraid. And I began to think about, honestly, us as parents today. Sometimes it can feel like, hey, I just want to hide out in the wine press. I want to take my kids and hide them from the rest of the world. And listen, there is a guard where we have a season. We've got to guard our children, but we can still be afraid and say, I'm just trying to keep mine. But the truth is, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And God looks at you, parent, who's worried about what your children may face. God looks at you, oh man and woman of God, and says to you, in the middle of your moments of fear and says oh valiant warrior I want you to know today parents mamas and daddies and granddaddies that your prayers matter that your voice matters that every time you speak truth it matters do not buy into the lie that there's nothing you can do God's got victory for you today can we get amen for that this morning I want to invite you to stand with me if you're here this morning and you've got some sexual sin going on in your heart and life, I encourage you to repent of that here today. As we sing, feel free to repent. If you're here this morning and you say, I need Jesus here today. I need His grace and mercy to cover me. Call out to Him right there where you are. He'll save you right there where you are. God can give you a new start. Praise God. He can wash all your sin away. If you need to join this church, you just need somebody to pray for you. You feel free to come as we sing. Brother Ken, would you lead us? Pastors, I'm going to ask our pastors to make their way forward. Let's sing. You feel free to come.